Okay, it's no big deal. I see him every day. We wave, we talk about the kids. They're both in college. Mike and Nina, I think? Okay, don't talk about the kids. Just ring the doorbell and say... Nope, can't do it. Like, what am I, just gonna barge my way into his Christmas plans? The plans he made with his adult kids who are probably spending Christmas with their mom. I'm sorry, did the cat get out again? Oh, no, 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 sorry. I just wondering if you had any plans for Christmas Eve. We're headed to Sagebrush and we'd love for you to come with. Hey, man, uh, yeah, definitely. Let me get your number. Yeah. There are lots of people this Christmas that will come to a Christmas Eve service, so I hope that you'll take the business cards and you'll pass those out and not let fear get the best of you. Well, there's a whole lost and dying world, friends, family, coworkers that need what you know about Jesus. And I hope that you'll come and you'll participate in celebrating that God so loved us that he gave us his very best. He gave us his only son. And we got great services planned for this Christmas Eve, so make sure you go to our website or go to the app and you can and find all the service times uh, that are listed there. All right, let's get into the message today. Uh, Thomas Paine wrote a pamphlet called Crisis During the American Revolution, and it got him in quite a bit of trouble. He had the famous line that said, these are the times that try men's souls. Well, there was no truer statement than that one. During this time, if you spoke out against the King of England or against the armies or the Navy of England, you could have your head chopped off of you. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened to Joseph Warren. He would not be silent about the tyranny that he saw all around him and what the King of England was trying to do. And so he produced all kinds of pamphlets and information. And for that, they beheaded him and then they presented his head to the general. Two of his friends, a man named Samuel Adams and John Hancock, contrary to popular belief, Samuel Adams did not own a brewery, and John Hancock was not involved in insurance. They were two godly men who couldn't sit by and watch all that was happening take place. They were close friends with Joseph Warren, and they knew if they continued to speak out against England that they too might have their heads chopped off as well, but it didn't matter to them. Someone had to stand and make a courageous decision for freedom. As a matter of fact, England hated these two men so much that when General Gage made a decree that any American colonist who had taken up arms against England's armies, that they would be forgiven. They would give them amnesty as if nothing had happened at all. All that was given to any one of the American colonies if they wanted to lay down their arms except for two people. Samuel Adams and John Hancock, they hated them so much for all that they had said and done, they wanted those two men to die. You know what we find to be true about history, we find to be true about today, is that true courage is hard to find. 
read a story this past week about an Ohio gentleman who owned an oil well. His oil well caught on fire, so he offered a reward of $30,000 for any fire department to come in and douse the flames of his oil well. Well, you can imagine there were fire departments from all around that came as quickly as they could to win the prize money of $30,000. Problem was, the oil well fire was so hot that none of the fire trucks could get within 200 yards of the blaze. Well, everybody thought that everything was lost, that there was no way for this fire to ever be put out. When wouldn't you know it, some fire truck group from a small little town got onto this rickety little fire truck and headed down that way. They only had one ladder on the fire truck. They didn't even have a hose. They had two buckets of water, three buckets of sand, and they had some blankets. Well, where everybody else had stopped 200 yards before, this fire truck boldly went where no fire truck had ever gone before and before you knew it you watched the little fire team just get out and they threw their couple of buckets of water and their three buckets of sand they took the blankets and they doused the flames and the fire was over well the owner of the oil well was so excited he ran over to them and congratulated them handed them thirty thousand dollars in cash he said what are you gonna gonna do with all this money well, the driver of the fire truck was still shaking from the adrenaline rush. He said, I tell you what, the first thing we're going to do is get the brakes fixed on that thing. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> True courage is hard to find. So today I'm going to ask you to make a courageous decision. I'm going to ask you to be all in for Jesus or all out for Jesus. I I'm not asking for any more lukewarm stuff. I'm not asking because Jesus doesn't ask us to be half in and half out. He wants all of us. Remember the book of Revelation to the church of Laodicea? He says, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to throw you up out of my mouth. I think it's time for us to make a courageous decision about who is Jesus and who's he going to be for us. Are we all in for the one who went all in for us or are we all out? Are we for him or are we against him? You say, why is that a courageous decision? Well, if you decide to be an all-in Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, understand this. You're going to have people say all kinds of evil against you. People are going to gossip about you. People are going to lie about you. You're going to lose some business along the way. You could even be sued for living out your Christian beliefs. You can lose your business as a result. If you decide to live all in for Jesus, people who are watching me overseas, you live in countries where Christianity is illegal. You know as well as I do that the, you could end up in prison, that you could lose your family, you could lose your home, that you could lose your very life just for having possession of a Bible. But I'll tell you this, it's a courageous decision worth making. Because our life on this earth is temporary, and what he has in store for us is far greater than anything we've ever dreamed or imagined. So we're looking at a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus takes his disciples and asks them a very pivotal question, the same question he's going to ask of you and me today, and you have to come up with what your answer is going to be. Now, here's how I'll set this passage of Scripture up in Luke chapter 9. Jesus has led his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He has done this intentionally. He's sitting in a grass field in front of a pagan temple. Let me show you a picture of it because it still remains there to this day. This is the, the, the pagan temple of Pan. This is the origination of pantheism. 
where everything is a God. So imagine the setting. Jesus sets all his disciples down. They've got the backdrop of this incredible structure of the temple of Pan where everyone's worshiping whatever God they think is right in their own eyes. And Jesus asks them this question. Let's look at it. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. All right, so Jesus travels all this way to this pagan temple to ask the question, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, here's what's interesting. The disciples were pretty wise because what the crowds were really saying about Jesus, they were saying he was a drunkard. They were saying that he was a glutton, that he was a friend of tax collectors, that he was a friend of the sinner. Now, it was the religious leaders of this day who had tried to discredit Jesus with all this gossip and all these rumors and all these terrible things said. So the disciples could have said, well, you really want to know the word on the street, Jesus, what they're saying? They're saying you drank too much. That's what they're saying. They're, they're saying you eat too much. They say you hang out with the wrong crowd of people. You party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. But they didn't go there, all right? They didn't, they didn't do that. That was wise of them. Then they said, well, well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. Well, who in the world was John the Baptist? Some of you know, some of you don't. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the prophet to make way the coming of the Messiah. Now, John the Baptist was an interesting character. He lived out in the desert. He ate honey and locust. He had a, a coat made of camel's hair. And he always told it like it was. He didn't mince any words. He was just a straight shooter. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders came out, he said, Woe to you, you brood of vipers. Who told you about the kingdom of God coming? Who told you to repent? John was the kind of guy where he'd just tell you what it was like, and he didn't care if you liked it or not. Well, that got him in some trouble, as you can imagine. During this time, Israel was divided into three different pieces. There were three different rulers, and one of the rulers was a guy named Herod Antipas. He had a brother, Philip, who ruled another section of Israel, and Philip was married to a woman by the name of Herodias. Well, guess what? Herod Antipas fell in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, this has got a lot of sick and wrong attached to it, you understand? When you're attracted to your brother's wife, but he stole his brother's wife, brought her back as his own. Of course, John the Baptist heard about that. And he said, that's all kinds of levels of sick and wrong. That's about as wiggity-whack as it gets. And he began to proclaim that that was sin and that the king needed to repent. You shouldn't be taking your brother's wife. Well, guess what? Herod Antipas didn't appreciate that. Herodias didn't appreciate that. So they had John the Baptist thrown in prison. Well, one night, Herod Antipas throws a little party, and at the party, Herodias' daughter from Philip uh, decides to dance before Herod Antipas. And Herod, the king, is so pleased with the dance that he says, I'll give you anything you want up to half of the kingdom. So she runs over to her mom, Herodias, and she says, what should I ask for? And she said, you ask him for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so that's what they did. They went down to the prison, they cut John's head off, and they presented the head of John the Baptist to Herodias on a platter because she hated him so much for the truth that he had shared. So a lot of people were saying, well, the spirit of John the Baptist now lives in Jesus. See, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was the prophet that would bring the Messiah along. Then they said, well, some say you're not John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. 
Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. It was prophesied that one from the line of Elijah, one with the spirit of Elijah, would come to make way the room for God, for the Messiah to come. So some said he was Elijah. Still others said that you're one of the older prophets, and you're kind of one of those guys reincarnated. Now think about this for a second. Who do the crowd say Jesus is today? If we ask a typical person, who's Jesus? They might say, well, he was a really good man, or he was a prophet, or, or he was a good teacher. I really appreciate the fact that he cared about the poor. I really appreciate the fact that he cared about women and he elevated them in the position of society. I think it's great that he was against the evil, corrupt religious leaders of his day. You'd have all kinds of different opinions and ideas about Jesus. So Jesus says, all right, well, that's what the crowds say. Doesn't really matter. Who, who do you say that I am? C.S. Lewis was a great theologian. He said, when it comes to the identity of who Jesus is, you really have only three options. It's one of the greatest arguments you can make for Christianity. He says either Jesus was a liar, Jesus was a lunatic, or Jesus was the Lord. Because when he gets right down to it, friends, those are the only three choices that you've got. So in the remaining time that I've got with you, I want to walk down each one of those paths. And I want you at the end to make your own conclusion. Are you in or are you out? Is he who he said he was or was he something else? Let's look at the different arguments. The first argument was that Jesus was a liar. Does that make any sense to anybody? Let's think about it for a second. Everything we know about Jesus from historians, from from the early records, from early accounts, from the documents that we have remaining, from scholars, is that Jesus was the pinnacle of morality. Everybody agrees with that. That Jesus' standards for integrity and for ethics was far greater than anybody else who lived before him or anybody else who lived after him. So here's the question you got to ask yourself. Would someone who's known for their morality and their ethics and their integrity be a liar? Would someone who's known for their morality and ethics and integrity be a liar in the sense that he knew he wasn't the Messiah, he knew he wasn't the Son of God, and in knowing he wasn't the Son of God, he still manipulated other people to believe it? Knowing that those people would leave their homes, leave their families, they would even leave their very livelihood, and many of them would die for the cause of Jesus Christ. What kind of sick, twisted person who's known for their morality and their ethics and their integrity would convince people to do something like that, knowing what they're convincing them of is an out-and-out lie? Doesn't match up with what we know about Jesus, does it? Let me tell you something else that's interesting about liars. You ready for this? Liars usually lie until the cost is too great, and then the truth comes out. And the way that the truth eventually comes out is through torture. Now, I'm not advocating that anyone should torture anybody, but wasn't Jesus tortured? Tortured for proclaiming that he was the Son of God? I mean, if he was lying, don't you think at some point in time in the midst of all the torture that Jesus went through, he would say, hey, 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 hold up here just a second. There's no reason to beat me. I was joking around. At what point would you finally tell the truth? Would it be when they arrested you in the Garden of Gethsemane? Would it be when they pulled your beard out, spit in your face, punched you, blindfolding you, saying, prophesy for us. Who just hit you, Jesus? At that point, would you probably say, hey, man, I've really riled you up. I've really upset you. I was just kidding around. How about when they stripped you naked? Would you, would you admit the truth then? When they took a whip called a cat of nine tails and they beat you and 
with the leather and the bone and the metal fragments and the glass that would rip into your chest and rip into your back and just layers of flesh would be dangling down. In fact, historians who write about the crucifixion of Jesus said you could even see his vital organs. He was beaten so badly he was beyond recognition. At, at some point in time, would you say, whoa, 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 that's enough. It was a joke. I didn't mean it. I was just trying to make a buck. Throw me in prison, but there's no reason to keep beating me. Maybe you would do it when you were walking towards Golgotha, the place of the skull, and you were so physically exhausted that you fell down under the weight of the cross. For certain, you would probably come clean when they pulled out the sledgehammer with the nails. When they began to nail your hands and your feet. No, history is a way of telling us that people don't die for a lie. Not a lie that they know is a lie. Because pain has a way of bringing out the truth. But what do we see in the life of Jesus? They beat him, they mocked him, they whipped him, they crucified him. And what did Jesus say? He said, well, do what you got to do. I know why I've come. I'm the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. I'm the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. I know what I have to do. And three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. I am God in the flesh. He never wavered. So, okay, so well, maybe, maybe, what, maybe he wasn't a liar. But he's just a lunatic. That's what he was. He was someone who believed the lie, but the lie it was still a lie. It's just he believed the lie to be true. Well, okay, I'm with you on that one because there's been lots of people who have claimed to be the Messiah, and they weren't exactly the picture of mental stability, right? Let's go back to the late 1700s, early 1800s. Let's look at Jemima Wilkinson for a second. This is probably a name you're not very familiar with, but she claimed to be the daughter of God. That's kind of convenient, isn't it? She said, I am the daughter of God. I'm, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except by me. I wonder where she got that line from. She got about 200 followers to follow her as the daughter of God, believing that she was, in fact, the Messiah. One day, it's one of my favorite stories, one day she's walking through the woods, and they came upon a lake. And she turned to her followers and she said, how many of you guys believe that I can walk on the water? And they all said, yes, we believe. We believe you can walk on the water. She said, well, since you believe I can, there's no reason for me to do it. And so she walked around the shore. Now, that's hilarious to me, you know. And some of her followers were like, I don't know about this woman. She can't walk on the water. And they started, you know, leaving a little bit. What killed poor Jemima Wilkinson's movement was in 1820 when she died. She knew she was going to die. So she pulled her followers aside and said, listen, I'm going to die. But guess what? Three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. This woman's not even original. You understand what I'm saying? Three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. So here's what I want you to do. Put my body on a stretcher and just leave it out there. And in three days, you're going to see me rise again. Well, they believed it. So they did exactly what she asked them to do. She died. They put her on a, a stretcher outside, you know, and... And they sat there, and day one came and went, and nothing happened. And day two came and went, and nothing happened. Day three came, and nothing happened. Just want to bring some suspense to it, okay? No, nothing happened. Day four came, and, and bugs came as well. And, and day five, decay and smells. And day six, and people were getting sick. And day seven, everybody said, well, I guess she wasn't who she said that she was. Because death has a way, you know, when you don't rise again, has a way of eliminating you from being the king of kings and the lord of lords. You remember David Koresh? He wasn't exactly mentally stable. Some of you are older. You remember this in Waco. You watched the fires on TV because it was national coverage. He somehow convinced his followers that he was the son of God. 
and he lit his compound on fire. And a lot of his followers died in that fire, right? Believing what David Koresh had told them to be the truth. And David Koresh was being a person of mental instability, believed the lie to be true as well. And he went down in the flames. Some of his followers actually made it. I went to Waco years later. They were still there, still praying, still believing that David Koresh was the Messiah. But, but he wasn't. If you look at his mental records, his physical records, you see all kinds of psychoses. The authorities said, we should have seen this coming all along. Very unstable individual. How about this guy, uh, Marshall Applewhite? He, he looks like the picture of sanity, doesn't he, right there? Remember, there was a comet that was coming by the earth, and he told all of his followers when he'd get on the tail of the comet. And so they all committed suicide so they could be on the tail of the comet. Here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. Was Jesus a lunatic? Was he, was he just mentally unstable? Did he, he believe the lie? Because it's not a lie if you believe it to be true. So maybe Jesus believed it to be true and he was just kind of off his meds. But what do we find in Jesus' life? Well, his teachings are genius, aren't they? This, this weekend, literally billions of people will gather together to study about him, to learn from him. And when you start dissecting the things that he had to say, you step away and you go, wow. I mean, I've never heard anything like that before in my life. He turned everything upside down, didn't he? And yet when you start living the way that he told you to live and the teachings that he gave us, you find a life, a life of fulfillment, a life of purpose, a life of meaning. His teachings are absolutely genius. And his relationships, was there any instability there? Anything going off half-cocked in the relationships? No, he had strong, stable relationships that lasted for years. In fact, we find that he was steady in adversity, calm in a crisis. There's absolutely no basis to assess that Jesus wasn't of sound mind and sound body. Uh-oh, what does this mean? Well, he's not a liar, not a lunatic. Was he the Lord? Was he who he said that he was? Well, Peter believed it to be true. When he said, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? He said, you are the Christ. See, some of you think that Jesus' last name was Christ. It's not. That's a title that's given to the Messiah. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are God in the flesh. You are the Son of God. Now, we've got to ask ourselves a question. What did Peter know that we didn't know? I mean, he had to have looked at the evidence before he made such a phenomenal proclamation by Luke chapter 9. What did he know? Well, Peter had a front row seat to some pretty miraculous things, didn't he? Jesus would travel from town to town, and each, travel that he, each town that he would travel in, what would he do? He would heal people. Heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame. Peter had a front row seat to seeing it. And Jesus didn't just do it once in a while. He did it for thousands and thousands of people. We're not talking about Benny Hinn kind of foolery kind of stuff. We're talking about legitimate people being healed. People who were blind could now see. People who couldn't walk could now walk. People who were mute could now talk. People who were deaf could now hear. At what point, how many healings would you have to see before you say, this guy is different from everybody else? Peter saw it happen thousands of times. But that wasn't all that he saw. 
He also saw Jesus have power over the dark world, power over demons. You say, oh gosh, we're talking about demons and Satan, Todd, really? Yeah, really? There is such a thing as angels. There is such a thing as demons. There is a supernatural spiritual world all around us. You say, why don't I see it more often in the United States? Well, the name of Jesus is proclaimed so much in the United States. But I can put you on a plane tomorrow if you'd like. I can take you to a country where the number one religion is black magic. And you'll see more demon-possessed people than you've ever seen before in your life. And you'll walk away with the same conclusion. There is a Satan, and there is evil, and there are demons that live in our world. Hey, gosh, my people would come up with people who were possessed by demons. They were so crazy, they were throwing themselves in the fire, out of their ever-loving mind. And Jesus would tell the demon to come out of that person, and that person would be sane. He would be okay from that point forward. Do you remember when Jesus went over to the other side of the lake with the disciples? And as they're on the other side of the lake, all of a sudden amongst the tombs, this guy comes running down naked as a jaybird. Do you remember this story? And Jesus says, what's your name? He says, my name's Legion, for we are many. A legion is, is 12,000 demons. 12,000 demons had entered into this man. And remember what Jesus did? He cast the demons out of the man after they begged him not to into the pigs. And the pigs ran down the side of the field, down into the lake. First case of swine flu in the Bible right there. That's still funny to me. I don't know why, but I think that's hilarious. Let me ask you a question. If you were there that day and you saw that take place, would you believe that he was the Messiah? It definitely gets your attention. This is a guy who's different from anybody else. How about this one? Jesus had power over nature. Peter's on a boat, and uh, Jesus is asleep on the boat, and the winds and the waves are buffeting the boat. In fact, the boat's going down. And so the disciples wake Jesus up, and they say, don't you care? Don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus stood up and said, be still. And the storm went away. And the sea that was rocking and rolling was just as calm as glass. Who is this man? One night, Jesus is praying, and he sends the disciples in a boat to go to the other side. And when they're headed to the other side, the storm blows up. Well, Jesus comes walking to them on the water about 3 o'clock in the morning. They, it's dark, and they look out to the storm and the lightning and the thunder and all that, and they, they think Jesus is a ghost. But then when Jesus gets close enough, they're like, oh, it's not a ghost, it's Jesus. And Peter says, hey, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come walk on the water with you. And Jesus said, come on. And Peter walked on the water. You got any friends, any family members that can help you walk on the water? And I'm not talking about below freezing temperatures, okay? Peter was there the day that Jesus fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Peter was there when Jesus said, collect all the leftovers, and they filled up 12 baskets full. You're looking at 12 baskets full that came from five little loaves of bread, little barley loaves of bread, and two little small fish. What would you conclude? He can multiply food. Who is this guy? Jesus also taught, and Peter got a front row seat to listening about the kingdom of God. And every time Jesus would open his mouth, he felt like his soul was going to leap from his chest. And everything Jesus described was what he wanted. It was what he desired. The life that Jesus had was the life that Peter wanted to have. And how about his power over death? I mean, you put yourself in a whole other category when you can control death. One day there was a funeral processional, and, and Peter's watching this thing, and, and Jesus touches the child, and the child comes back to life again. 
Or how about when Lazarus was dead? Not one day, not two days, not three days, but four days. Peter was there when they rolled away the gravestone. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Peter saw Lazarus come forth after being dead for four. What would you conclude after seeing that? Let me give you something else that Peter saw. He saw, Peter, he saw Jesus' life. He saw a life of character, a life of integrity. This is what he wrote about Jesus' life in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He, that's Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Let me ask you a question. Could anyone say that about you after being with you for, let's say, a week? What if, what if I hung out with you for a full day? What my conclusion as I walk away going, man, there's no deceit, no sin in that person's life whatsoever. Would that be my conclusion? If you spent the day with me, would that be your conclusion of me? Just ask my wife. It would not. He looked at the evidence. And by Luke chapter 9, he said, I don't need to see anymore. You're the Christ. You're the King of kings and you're the Lord of lords. You're God in the flesh. You're the Messiah. Because I've seen you do things that nobody's ever done. And what did Jesus say when he makes that proclamation? He warned them not to tell this to anyone. Why was that? Because it wasn't Jesus' time yet. It wasn't his time yet to die on the cross for the sins of all mankind. It wasn't his time yet to rise again from the dead. But this is what's interesting. Then the next verse, he tells them exactly how he's going to die. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Anybody here predict the day you're going to die? Who's going to kill you? How they're going to kill you? Jesus did it. Not once or twice, he called his shot over and over and over again. And everything Jesus said was going to happen, happened just the way Jesus said that it would happen. So at what point would you come to the conclusion? He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. Oh my. He is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. So the question you got to ask yourself is, are you all in? Or are you all out? Because Jesus would rather you be hot or dead set against him. But he certainly doesn't want you to be lukewarm. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. You in or are you out? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when we sit back and we think about it, it's kind of obvious because you've left us so much evidence. My goodness. Verse upon verse, chapter after chapter, and not just from biblical sources, historical sources, outside the Bible. You are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. And Lord, I know that there are people watching me at home. I know that there are people in this room that haven't crossed the line of faith. They have not gone all in for you. I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day when they would realize that you are who you say you are and that you're worthy of our very best. Lord, I pray today would be the day that we would push through our fear 
and we would be courageous. That we would proclaim you to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords of our life. May your will be done in this moment. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.